0: God's Word, won't you find the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6 is where we're going to be at tonight. We are continuing our series called Origins, and we are looking at the original stories that we find in the first book of the Bible, and we're seeing how those can impact and inform the way that we do life and the way that we see the world tonight. And I'm so excited that you made the decision to get here, and I just want to share with you a little bit of my family life. And about a year ago, we got to, my wife and I, we got to take our kids out to a little place outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, and there's a big museum out there. Uh, with a giant replica of this thing called the Ark. And so it's called the Ark Encounter. You can see me and my crew right here, me and my girls and my wife and the Ark in the background. We're having a good time. And anyway, we had a blast just getting to explore. And it's kind of like this uh, walkthrough museum and like we got to ride a camel and there's shows, all kinds of other stuff going on. And one of the big reasons why we went down there is because we've been reading stories in the Bible and we wanted to go to a place that really brought the Bible to life. And so there's this story about a great flood, and I don't know if you're new to the Bible or not. I was actually with a buddy of mine uh, yesterday, and we were having lunch, and the waitress that was waiting our table. I said, "Hey, um, I'm trying to figure out how to uh, relate this great flood story to people that are your age." And I was like, "Have you ever heard about the great flood story, like Noah and the Ark, and the Bible?" And she's like, "No, I've never even heard of that story." And maybe that's you. Maybe you've come here tonight, and when it comes to some of those familiar Bible stories, you didn't really grow up around the Bible, and so you're like, "Man, I have no idea what the great flood story is." Uh, an interesting fact is that about 150 different ancient civilizations tell a story about a great flood and how there was a man and his family that were saved by, being, uh, by, by building a container that floated throughout this flood. And so it shouldn't be any surprise as we read the pages of our Bible, because we're studying an ancient book, that there is a story that contains this great flood story. And if you're new to the Bible, let me just kind of give you the highlights of the great flood story. God, he made mankind, and we looked at last week that mankind, we rebelled against God and and literally hell began to break loose in the world. And so we see early on in the pages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 4 that there's the first murder between two brothers. A guy named Cain murdered his brother Abel. And then you fast forward just a couple of chapters, and by Genesis 6, we're only six chapters in the Bible, it literally says that God was sorry that he made man. Isn't that crazy? And then it says that his heart was broken because he looked down and he saw all of the wickedness that was taking place in the world. And so he said, I'm going to have to judge the world. And the way that he chose to judge the world was by flooding the world. Now, there was a man named Noah who believed in God, and he was like the only God that was somewhat righteous in this whole thing. And so God looked at Noah, and he said, Noah, I need you to build an ark, not a boat, but an ark, and I'll explain the difference here in a minute. And he tells him to build this ark, and he says, it's going to be a big project, and I'm actually going to send some animals, and you're going to save all of the animals. There's going to be like a pair, or there's even some sevens that go into the ark. Anyway, Noah loads up a bunch of animals on this ark, him and his three boys and their families. They give aboard this ark and then floods come down and the whole world is flooded and it floods and it rains and the water comes from up underneath the earth it comes from down and it rains for like 40 days and then they are just cruising on this ark just being tossed to and fro and then several days later they finally hit land and God sends a rainbow as a reminder that he's never going to flood the earth again And this is kind of the the highlights or the high-level view of the story of Noah and the ark. And maybe you've heard this story before, and maybe you haven't, but some of you, maybe you're coming here and asking whether or not you've heard the story, what's the main point of the story? Like, why is this in the Bible? And I think one of the main reasons why this story has been captured in the Bible is because it teaches us some things about God's character. It teaches us some things about God's justice, that God is a God of justice. I don't know if you know that or not. And that when we look at the story of Noah and the flood and everything that's going on, what we see is that God takes sin, he takes evil, he takes wickedness very seriously. And that the story of Noah and the flood is one of these stories that really conveys the, the justice of God. It's one of the things that we see play out all throughout the scriptures, that God, he is a just God. Now, justice is one of these words that we just kind of throw out a lot. I don't know if you've ever seen this word or used this word maybe at the office this week and something came up and you were talking about justice, social justice, or, or work employment justice, or just racial justice, or just I mean, we just use that word a lot. And oftentimes you can use a word with somebody, feel like you're on the same page, but then it's like, I think we're on different pages. I think you define justice differently than the way i define justice so let me just kind of bring everybody together justice if you're taking notes it's just a simple word that means things as they should be that justice means it's 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 used for what is right or or as it should be and so when we say i want justice what we're saying is i want things to be as they should be And, and we all want justice right like I think when we've been wrong, we're like, we want justice and we want things to be done right. Or when we see someone else that's been done wrong, we're like, hey, that's not right. We need some justice over there. And really, there's this incense or this, this increased sense of justice in our generation. And so like when we hear about inequalities in the workplace, we cry for justice. When we hear about people who are being oppressed, we cry out for justice, when we get assaulted and we get, um, we get uh, attacked or whatever, we cry out for justice. Or, or if somebody cuts you off and they're speeding on the highway, and then you see a, a, a speed trap set by the police officer, and they speed by you, or they sped by you and they cut you off, and then you see them getting pulled over, you all like, got them, you know, because you see justice play out, right? Like, we all have come in here for the most part, and we want justice, and we appreciate justice. I, and I don't know if you ever think this way, but... You ever think, like, where did that come from? Like, where did this uh, innate sense of if you do something wrong, you, you should, that, that's not as it should be. There should be justice there. You ever think about, like, wh- where, did, where did this sense of right and wrong, evil and good, just and unjust, like, where does it all originate? And I would argue from the pages of Scripture tonight that justice, it originates with God. If you're taking notes tonight, I've titled of this message, where did justice come from? Where did justice come from? And I want to point you to three observations from God's word tonight that evil demands justice, that justice delivers judgment. And before we leave tonight, I want to give you some hope that mercy will triumph over judgment. Justice, again, it just means as it should be. And I think the obvious question to ask when you are defining justice that way way is is as it should be according to what or according to whom? And when we read the Bible, the, the standard for justice is God's righteousness, and so we learn that God is a righteous God. We learn that he is a God of justice. And so when it comes to understanding justice or as it should be, you're saying it's as it should be according to God's standard, in God's just nature, it flows from his holiness. If you're new to the Bible, this word holy is like, it's one of the key characteristics of God in the Bible. It's actually the most emphasized characteristic of God in the Bible. And it literally means that God is, he's set apart, he's of a different kind. And, and I don't know what idea of God that you have brought in here tonight, but I would, I would think that you would agree, whatever idea of God you brought in here tonight, that, that God's on a different level, all right? Uh, he, he's of a different kind. And so from that differentness of God Flows his justice. It says in Psalm ninety two, fifteen that the Lord is upright, and there is no wickedness in him. In Psalm eighty-nine fourteen, it says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. So what we've seen in the Bible so far is that God has dealt swiftly with some people that have that have disobeyed God, but he hasn't really dealt with them like fiercely, in my opinion, especially when you compare the, what he's about to do in Genesis chapter six. And here's what it says in Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all of the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Point number one, if you're taking notes tonight, you could write this down. Evil demands justice. Evil demands justice. And again, I think we know this. Like, intrinsically, I think we know this, right? Like, I think we've come in here tonight, and if someone does evil then most of us would, would say, like, that person shouldn't do that, like right? You know, like, I've got these three little girls. You just saw pictures of them. Like, I want you to imagine that, that one of, like, the biggest guys is here tonight, like jo- Josh Hopper or Pat Lule, you know, one of the big guys, right? And I want you to imagine they just walk, walk up, and I think they're about to dap up one of my girls, and they just open hands slap one of my girls, you know? All right, that's a problem, you know? I may not be as big as those guys, but I'm going to be like, like, I don't know if you've ever seen Patriot with the tomahawk scene. That's me on them tonight, all right? Because like those are my children and, and grown men don't slap little girls, okay? And I think all of us would agree, hey, that's not right. And I would probably have some help beating them up. You think? Yeah? You think so? I would need some help for sure. And, uh, and I think all of us would agree that if, if you do something like that, you need to pay. That when someone does something evil, it demands justice. But I think sometimes when we hear about the justice of God, like we get surprised. We're like, like, God, God you, you shouldn't be that way. But if we would demand justice, if somebody assaulted my child and me being an evil man would, would say, hey, we need to, ha- we need to stand up for, for what's right, I think God who is perfect stands for what's right all the time. And what we see here in the scripture is that it's telling us that God saw the wickedness and the evil of everyone. But think about this real quick. God sees everything. Like he sees what you do externally, but what the scripture teaches is that God even knows the intentions and the thoughts of our hearts. That kind of makes me shudder a little bit, (laughs) y'all, because like if I just try to think like if you knew what God knew about me, you would be like, this man should not be preaching. I mean, if you knew what was going on up in here, you'd be like, Lord, you know, I, that, is, that man has got, he's got anger issues, he's got lying issues, he's got all, if you knew the intentions of my heart, there's some things I'm just like, where did that come from, swipe, you know, get that out, right? And I think if I knew everything that God knew about you, I may not have let you in the building. I definitely would to adapt you up, you know, I'm like, what's wrong with you, right? Like, I think all of us would agree that there are thoughts that come across our mind And there are things that even get stirred up in our heart, let alone all the things that we've actually done. And we would say, uh oh, God sees everything. And what it tells us here in Genesis chapter 6 is when he saw everything, when he surveyed the landscape of humanity, all he saw was evil. Now, I don't think that we can really begin to understand the justice of God unless we first understand what evil and wickedness is. So, God, he says that he saw the wickedness of man. He saw that it was great. And he saw every intent of the thoughts of man's heart. And he says that it was only evil continually. When you look at this phrase, these sentences in the original language, the word for wickedness and the word for evil are the same word in the Hebrew. And so what the Bible's teaching us is that God, he just saw wickedness and evil. You can use those things interchangeably. And he just says, man, I, I saw these things. And what that literally means is that I saw morally bad things. I saw corruption of the heart. That what happened is when Adam and Eve, when they sinned, it says that their eyes were open to the knowledge of good and wickedness or and evil. And now we're beginning to see this seep out into society. And God is looking upon humanity and all he sees is men and women who have given in to those evil inclinations in their heart. And when it comes to evil and wickedness, man, it embodies everything that is contrary to God's holy nature. And wickedness and evil, it is offensive to God because God is perfect and he's righteous and he's just. And I think sometimes like we, we want God to overlook some of the things that we have a tendency to overlook. Like I think sometimes we want God just to kind of turn the other way from some of the things that we've said, thought, or done. But what you find out in the scripture is that if God, if he turns away from evil, then he ceases to be perfect. If God turns away, if he turns a blind eye to wickedness, then he ceases to be just. And so he's looking at the wickedness of the world and he's looking at the evil. He's like, man, I got to do something about this. Now, I don't think you came to church tonight for me to be like, hey, you're wicked, bro. You are evil, you know. Welcome to Barrett's Paradigm. You know, I don't think that that was what you were hoping for me to tell you tonight, but I think sometimes we want to overlook and overestimate our goodness, and oftentimes we want to just compare ourselves to the other people around us. And we're like, well, you know, I'm not that bad of a guy. At least I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, don't look at him. But you know what I'm saying? Like there's somebody else in here or somebody that you know in your life and that you can compare yourself to. And you would be like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not, at least I'm not that guy. And oftentimes we don't want to admit that we're wicked or that we're evil because it's, that's kind of a heavy word. But, but maybe we could just do this. Could we just admit that we're probably worse off than we want to admit? Like, like if you took some time and you really just jotted down the things that you, you thought about a lot, more than likely, you're going to be like, that's not good, you know? And what the Scripture's going to say about our own hearts is that our hearts are desperately wicked. And it says that, they, that our hearts are beyond cure. And it even says about our hearts, who can know it? That there's a way that seems right in our heart, but in the end, it leads to death. And so I don't know if you've ever heard of the good test. And so like, let me give you the good test real quick. Not a fun test, but it's just gonna help us all move along in the same direction. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of like the big 10, the 10 commandments. These are some commandments that come out in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And, and these are like the top 10. Like there's lots of other things that we could talk about. Well, let's just talk about a few of the top 10. And what it says in, in one of the top 10 commandments, it says that you shouldn't give false testimony. You shouldn't lie. I'm just thinking, you don't have to raise your hand because I know this is true. How many of y'all told a lie? Yep, everybody, right? Everybody and so what does that make you? That makes you a liar. Or um, Jesus, he, he begins to talk about more of the intentions of a man's heart. So when he steps onto the scene, he says this, like, uh, you've heard it said, you should not commit murder. And he says, how many of y'all have had hatred in your heart towards your brother? And if you've had hatred in your heart towards your brother, then you've committed murder in God's eyes. Now, how many of y'all have hated on somebody before? <laughs> Everybody, Right. right. Jesus, he also, he uses the, the commandment of, of adultery. He says, you shouldn't commit adultery. And he says, you've heard that command before, but Jesus says that I say to you, if you've had lust in your heart towards somebody, how many of you have had lust in your heart towards somebody? And Jesus would say, if you have, then you've committed adultery. And so the good test goes like this. If you would say, hey, I've lied before, I've had hatred in my heart before, I've lusted before, then what you've said based upon your own admission is that you are a lying Murderous adulterer, welcome to church. You know, say like, praise God. And some of you like, I don't know, I don't know. And and I would just say like, how many of y'all ever been on a dating app? If you've been on a dating app, let me just let me just bust you real quick. You've lied on your profile, all right. Some some way, all right. I know you have. If it was an angle, that may be in the lie. I don't know, you know. And uh, you've hated on that because you saw your ex or somebody that did you wrong. You're like, how are they on here? I'm getting on a different one, right? And then, and then you probably lusted after somebody that was out of your league, you know, but you hit them up and you thought maybe, like, you know what I'm saying? And so you get, if you're on a dating app, you're guilty of all those. But you don't have to be on a dating app to be guilty of all those. But that proves my point. So here's the reality that we've come in here and according to the Bible standards, We are guilty of being evil. That we are guilty of wickedness. And again, God sees everything. And when he looks upon our wickedness, when he looks upon our evil, when he looks upon our lies, even though they may be small, when he looks upon our hatred towards somebody that we try to avoid at the office, when he looks upon the lust that we may have towards another individual or individual's, He sees that, and he sees wickedness, and he sees evil. And listen, if God is a good judge, what must a good judge do with this sort of behavior? And the answer is he should judge it. Because it's not as it should be. Now, I think it's important for us to really understand how God judges things. Because maybe you've come in here and, and you've heard messages about God and, and you, you think that God is like out to get you, you know? Like he, he's like a police officer with a radar gun on your morality and he's trying to pull you over so that he can give you a ticket, man, and he can't wait to write you up. And I think sometimes we'll have this view of God where he's just like waiting to smite us, you know? And that's not really the picture that the Bible paints of God, what we see is that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. And we see that he is steadfast and he is wishing that none would perish, but that all would come to a saving knowledge of himself. And it seems like you have God's justice in this hand, and you have God's mercy and grace in this hand. And we see those two things begin to try to work together. And so oftentimes we can caricature God and say, man, he's all justice and he's all wrath and he's all anger. And that's just not true. And one of the ways we see that play out is we see God's response to the evil of humanity, And it's important how the Bible portrays God because if you've come in here with your own invention of who God is and you read the Bible and it's contrary, the Bible wins every time. And we've come in here to submit ourselves to the teaching of God's word so that we can build a proper understanding of who God is or a proper biblical theology. And so what we see is that God responds to this observation. Again, he's seen the evil and he's seen the wickedness of humanity and here's how he responds in verse six. It says, and the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. That God was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Why? The Bible's teaching us that God, listen, God grieves when we walk in wickedness. When God sees us do something evil, it breaks his heart. Because this this isn't how things were made to be. Like every time that you've told a lie, every time I've told a lie, that's not as it should be. We were meant to be men and women of integrity. Every time that we've been lustful towards someone or, or someone, that's not as it should be. Because we are meant to be people of purity. Every time we've been anxious about the future, and I don't know when I'm going to settle down and get this, and I don't know, and I'm, and I'm fearful and I'm worried, that's not as it should be. Every time we've complained, been discontent, that's not as it should be. And it breaks the heart of God because we're experiencing something that is less than what is ultimately good in his sight because we're given in to the evil and the wickedness that's in our heart. And all of the sin and all of the brokenness, all of the things that we do that are dysfunctional and that are are separating us from our relationship with God, they all flow from a heart that is sick. And it makes God sad when we sin. And when we sin, it breaks the heart of God. I think one of the saddest verses in the Bible is when God looks at mankind, the crescendo of his creation, his magnum opus, if you will, the, the, the jewel of his eye, when he looks at his image bearers and he sees the way that we've ordered our life. And one of the saddest verses in the Bible is when he says, I'm sorry that I made them. Like how, how sad would it be if I told you about my kids I'm like, they, you know, they're great, and then one day I walk up here and I'm like, guys, here's a picture of my kids. I'm sorry that I made them. Like that would be so sad, right? You'd be like, what did they do for you to say that? You know. And this is like one of the saddest verses in all the Bible that God said, "I'm sorry that I made them, and that my heart is broken." This is the first time that these phrases are used in the Bible. Sorry, if you don't know what that means, let me just give you a definition. It literally means to regret or to be moved to pity, it, it means to, to it has a sorrow that's rooted in grief. When it says that God grieved, it says that what that means in grief is that you have a pain in your heart. And so when he's looking down upon, upon what's happening, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm heartbroken. I didn't want them to live this way. And again, the reason why God is heartbroken is because he doesn't delight in seeing his people walk in wickedness. He doesn't delight in seeing his people enjoy evil. God does not delight in judging people for their sins. This was not his intent. And so your wickedness, my wickedness, your evil, my evil, listen, it breaks the heart of God. And before there was ever a flood of wrath, there were tears of regret. Why? Why was God sorry? Because he saw the way that we were living. I don't know if you have any respect or reverence for God, but oftentimes there's been, there's been times in my life where, like I knew that God was there and I knew He was almighty, but I still chose to walk in wickedness. And there have been times in my life where I know I broke the heart of God. And the thought of me breaking God's heart to this day, it, it, it saddens me. I, I don't want to displease God. I want to please Him. And we see here that God is sorry for what's going on. And some of you are thinking, what, what, I thought he was God. Why is he sorry? I mean, why is, why is the Bible saying this? Well, let me just be real clear why the Bible is saying this. It's, it, it, the reason why we see the sorrow of God is not to question God's sovereignty, but the reason why we see the sorrow of God, it's meant to show us the depth of our depravity. Like we're seeing the seismic impact of sin and wickedness and, and evil from the rebellion of man. And so here's what it says in verse 7. It says that the Lord said, I'm going to destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I've made them. He's judged the evil, the verdict is guilty. And the punishment is death. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. If you flip over to Genesis chapter seven, verses 20 through 22, we begin to see that that this flood began to come. And and now we see that that, that the world has been judged and we're on the aftermath of this flood. And it just says that the waters, they prevailed 15 cubits upward, just really high. And the mountains were covered. Think about that. The mountains were covered with water. And it tells us the outcome and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land, note this, died. That when God said he was gonna send justice and judgment, he was serious. Point number two, if you're taking notes tonight, I could write this down. Justice delivers judgment. Justice delivers judgment. See, the way that God responds to evil is to deliver righteous judgment. And he delivered the righteous judgment, listen, with a broken heart. And that's really, really important because when you survey other creation stories, oftentimes you have this angry God that is displeased with men and he's like throwing lightning bolts down or he's angry and he's just all of this contention, all this destruction. And oftentimes God gets painted that way. But before there's ever the wrath in the waters, there were tears and there was a broken heart that the justice of God had delivered the death sentence to the wickedness of the world. Why? Because again, the wages of sin is death according to the Bible. And if there's any doubt in your mind as to whether God takes sin seriously, let this story flood your mind with security that you do not want to play games with a holy and righteous God. And the flood, it reveals the depths of, of God's wrath towards our rebellion. I think sometimes we, we want God to be this this coddling, like just sit in my lap and I know you've done wrong, but let me scratch your back, God. And God's not a pampering God. God is a God that, that takes sin seriously. He doesn't just dismiss our darkness. God knows nothing of tolerance towards our sin. And our depravity demanded a deluge of God's wrath upon humanity. That the wrath of God, it makes no apology for its terror. No more than the lion apologizes for its brutality. The wrath of God doesn't retreat. The wrath of God knows no remorse. The wrath of God doesn't relent. It shows no mercy. It gives no apology. The wrath of God withers the mighty. It impoverishes the rich. It exposes the self-righteous. And it wrecks the wicked. And the flood that we see here in Genesis is just a warning of a greater judgment to come. That this catastrophic Canyon carving, earth altering flood is a puddle compared to the wrath of hell in eternity. So God, he's preserved this story for him to to warn us that he takes our sin serious. Listen, I think you've come in here, you know this, that you're gonna live forever somewhere. That there's this immaterial part of us and we don't just cease to exist when we die. That you and I, we're gonna live forever somewhere. This weekend, I had the privilege of going to, or I had the privilege of going out to Colorado. A good friend of mine, he died suddenly this summer. And one of his last requests was for 20 guys from all over the country to take his ashes to what he calls the most beautiful place on earth. It's a place called Mills Lake in Estes Park, Colorado. And so these men, we fly into Denver on Friday. We hike this trail over the weekend. And we dispersed his ashes in a place that he asked us to. And it was one of those things before we did this, it was one of those moments that was like, a, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, a, a thin place. And a thin place, that's just a phrase to describe like when it seems like heaven and earth are colliding. And so it was like one of these magical days where it's beautiful. We're in the creation of Colorado. If you haven't been to Colorado, take a weekend. Drive out there. You should. It's awesome. And so we're out there at Mills Lake and we're sitting around a circle and we have my buddy's ashes and I do leather work. And so I built a leather urn. That's what he asked me to do. And so we're passing this leather bag of my buddy around, you know, and it's like, pass the stick. You know, have you ever done this? is just pass the Bobby, all right? And so we're passing Bobby around and we're all sharing a story. And, and it was one of these things where there was, there was so much evidence that this man's life had been changed by God Almighty that we could have filled a Smithsonian with evidence. Because there was a point in his life where he understood, I'm gonna live forever somewhere. And if I don't do something with my wicked heart and my evil and my life, if I, don't, if I don't get this right with God, if I don't get a right relationship with God, then it's not gonna end well for me. But because he trusted God with his life and because he understood that there is is justice that works in the universe, because he understood that there is a God out there that that wants a relationship with him and he trusted him, listen, on his deathbed, he was ready to meet his maker. And I would just ask you, are you ready to meet your maker? Don't you know this, that death does not RSVP? Do you know that? Like it shows up like that weird uncle that just shows up at the house, you know, like unannounced. Hey, I'm here, you know. That's how death operates in our life. Now, no, we don't like to talk about the end very much because we're young adults here tonight and we think we're immortal, we're gonna live forever, but that's just not the case, man. Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready for what's on the other side of death? Because death, it'll come swiftly. And God's judgment is sure to follow. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24. He said this in Matthew twenty-four thirty-seven. He says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took all of them away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be he goes on to say, therefore, here it is, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Jesus, he believed in the flood story of Genesis 6, 7, 8, and nine. And he used that story as a way to warn people of the reality that they're going to die someday and they're going to be judged. And the severity of God is demonstrated clearly in the way that he flooded the world. And the flood, it demands a high view of justice And it also demands a clear view of wickedness. Are you ready? Are you ready to die? Now, um, we, we don't like to talk about this a lot. I can kind of tell in the room. It's kind of quiet tonight. So we don't like to talk about this. It's a little bit uncomfortable because I'm like, wrath is coming, you know. Justice and judgment. You're wicked. You're evil. I've just kind of offended everybody tonight, all right. We're in good company, but I'm trying to be a, love, I'm to be a loving pastor tonight. I'm trying to preach the truth in love to you tonight because sometimes the, the news hurts a little bit. When you go see a doctor and you've got a tumor, you don't want him to be like, well, you're, you seem like a nice guy. I'll, I'll just pat you on the back. Good luck, you know. That's not what you want the doctor to do. You want the doctor to be like, hey, give me the news. Cut it to me quick. What's the problem? And oftentimes we like to talk about the justice of God or the wrath of God, that he's justice demands that he punishes weakness, wickedness. We don't like to talk about that. But what's ironic is that we all want justice. I don't know if you see that or not. Like, like in recent years, we've seen riots and protests where people have demanded justice. And, and that's not wrong to demand justice. I'm just saying, where does that come from? And and what you feel stirring up inside of you that you can't treat people that way, that you can't do things that way, when you go stand, protest, post, whatever you did during that time, all that is is coming from God inside of your heart, the divine DNA, that God's saying that there's a right and there's a wrong. This is the way I created the world and what's ironic is that we want justice and we'll protest and we'll post and we'll do all these things for justice. But then when we start having a conversation about God being a God of justice and God judging us, we're like, nah, bro, I'm out on that. And it's ironic, but you can't have an understanding of justice in and of yourself without having an understanding of the character and the nature of God. And again, it seems harsh that God would punish the world. But even in the midst of this judgment. God is still merciful. It says here in Genesis chapter six that God said to Noah, again, Noah, he's like the MVP of this story. He's the guy that God chose to build the ark. And he says this, he says, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through men and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. We fast forward to Genesis 7, 5, and it simply says this, that Noah did to all that the Lord commanded him. Point number three, and finally, if you're taking notes tonight, you could write this down, the ark of mercy. The ark of mercy. God, he commanded Noah to build this ark, loaded up with animals, and Noah simply did what God said. (laughs) Noah had never seen rain before. Think about this. He had never seen rain before. He had no concept of rain like many of us have no concept of God's judgment, but he had faith in God. And he built this giant ark. It's an incredible structure. Here's another picture of it right here. And you can imagine, like, Noah and his, and his three sons, like, what y'all doing today? We're going to go saw some wood, and we're going to build some pegs. They didn't have nails. They didn't have DeWalt. They didn't have Milwaukee. They didn't have none of that. They're just out there building every day, every day, faithfully, year after year after year. And it's, it's this incredible structure. The ark, it was, it's about a football field and a half long, 95 feet wide, four stories high, that could house 16,000 to 50,000 animals. Experts would say that in order to build a structure like this, the way that Noah did, it would take 81 years. And Noah was given 120. And he had three sons whose only job was to build this ark. And Noah, he would go out and he would build the ark. But the Bible also tells us that he would go out and he would warn people. And people are like, What are you building? And Noah's like, I'm building an ark. Like, What's an ark? He's like, I don't really know, but I'm building it. And like, Why? Because it's gonna rain. What's rain? Noah's like, I don't know, but God told me that He's gonna flood the earth and you need to get on the ark. And He was a preacher of righteousness, is what the Bible tells us. That Noah simply believed God and He did what God asked Him to do. And the ark became the means by which God saved His creation. And the ark became the the image of God's mercy even in the midst of judgment. That Noah believed God, he built an ark and he surrendered to the ark for salvation. Now again, I told you that the ark's not a boat. What makes a boat is it's got a rudder and you you can steer the boat. The ark was just basically like a box. And Noah, he simply had to surrender into the confines of this container, if you will. Has no rudder, no propulsion. That when you enter the ark, you completely surrender to the ark. You have no control whatsoever. And all you can do is just sit in its protective covering. That, that Noah and his family, they had to trust God completely that the ark it's a picture of god's mercy upon humanity in the midst of its in uh, the midst of the severity of god's judgment that the ark imagine like it rises like redemption on the waters of god's wrath and the message that ripples throughout the story of the bible is built upon the paradox of wrath and redemption having a collision that God is trying to teach us something in this story. He's trying to teach us how we relate to him, that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin literally means that you miss the mark. It's an archery term. And so if we're aiming an arrow at the target over here, sin says, man, we aimed over here and we completely missed the mark. That The Bible teaches that our sin, it deserves justice, that the wages of sin is death. And that the only way that we can be delivered from God's judgment is to believe in God or board the ark. And that the only thing that we bring into salvation is the surrender that, that, that we offer to say, God, here I am. Would you save me? I don't know if you see this or not, but the ark, it's like a type of cross. We talk about the cross a lot in the church because the cross isn't the thing that saves you, but the cross is the thing that the Son of God was nailed to, and it is the vehicle by which we have forgiveness of sins through Christ's bloodshed on a cross. And Noah, what he did is he took nails and wood, and he made a way of salvation. And everyone that trusted in this wooden structure was saved, and he sealed it with pitch. In the Hebrew, the word pitch is the word kefar, Kephar is the word that would go on to be translated as atonement. Atonement is a word that literally means at one meant with God. And so what it's telling us is that Noah, he was commanded by God to take the atonement and to seal the ark on the inside and the outside. That God washed away the sins of the world as his wrath came down from heaven in the form of a violent water. But his wrath could not penetrate the pitch that was on the ark or the atonement that was on the ark. And the ark floated on top of the waters of God's wrath likewise 2,000 years ago nails and wood came together to build a cross and Christ used the nails in his hands and his feet and the wood on his back and he built an ark and all who climb on this ark will be saved that God's wrath came down on the cross dealing with sin once again this time the flood came down on divinity not humanity and if you trust in the cross or the vehicle by which God brought about salvation and you're covered in Christ's atonement from the inside out and the wrath of God cannot penetrate that seal that Christ he becomes our ark he becomes our refuge in the storm he becomes our strong tower he becomes our shield he is our storm shelter Jesus is our ark but you have to bore the ark you have to surrender and so question tonight have you trusted Christ like like has there been a time in your life where you've said man I I'm worse than I really want to admit. And I've tried to get over this thing, whatever that thing is, we all got a thing. And, and man, it keeps, it keeps eating my lunch, man. And has there been a time where you've realized, when I, when I understand like the holiness of God, like I begin to see like the chasm that exists between God and me. And when you begin to get a grasp of God's holiness, it reveals your sinfulness in a new way. Like again, think about this. Jesus, God, he sees everything. And if you haven't trusted Christ, then I, just, I feel obligated to warn you because I love you. I've given my life to teaching this book to people just like you so that you can be made right with God. And if I don't speak the truth in love, then I'm not a loving person. That God, he sees everything in our lives, every thought, every word that you've spoken, the things that you've done in the secret. And unless you trust Christ and his saving work on the cross, atoning for your sin as your only hope for salvation, listen, you're not safe. I don't know if you can imagine Noah. Like, think about this for a second. I mean, he's built the ark. The Bible tells us that he kind of waited around a little while. And probably people were, like, making fun of him and, like, oh, you're out of your mind. And he's loaded up all the animals and then it begins to sprinkle. In the Bible, I think sometimes we would we would think that Noah was like, "Yeah, that's right, got gotcha, y'all," you know, and like he would be like, "Yeah, wish you was up here now," you know, that kind of thing. But that wasn't Noah's heart, man. The, the scripture tells us that men of God that understand their relationship with God and that they didn't deserve the grace and the mercy of God, they are never lording that over somebody else like they're better than them. But they're always like one beggar who found bread, trying to tell other beggars where there's some bread. And Noah, he wasn't like, yeah, got y'all. But Noah, he was pleading with people to get on the ark. Like you imagine, starting to sprinkle. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh, here comes the wrath of God Almighty. And like he's standing out there, come on, get on the ark. Get on the ark while there's time. If you don't get on the ark, you're going to be doomed. you got to get on the ark. God's judgment is coming. This is the day you got to get on the ark. And you could imagine Noah that day. The Bible tells us that Noah, he longed that people would come with him. But it tells us in Genesis chapter 7, verse 16, that God shut the door. And I just imagine the terror. This has become like a cute kid's story where we put it up in the nursery. It's not. The floods come and people start knocking. And eventually, the world. Is judged for their sin. Listen, the door of opportunity is made available to everyone here tonight. And in the spirit of Noah, I would just say, get on the ark. Like, what are you waiting on to trust your life over to Jesus Christ? Get on the ark. If you die apart from a right relationship with Christ, you will be judged for your sin. Get on the ark that you can come and you can come freely tonight and you can board the the only hope of salvation, which is a right relationship with Christ. Get on the ark, man. What are you waiting on? Because the door of opportunity to respond to salvation is closing and the rain of God's wrath is beginning to sprinkle. Get on the ark. If you don't know Christ, there's still time to get on the ark. I want to invite you just to bow your head and close your eyes. Just want to ask you a couple of questions. First question is this Have you got on the ark? And what I mean by that is, has there been a time in your life where you've realized your need for Jesus to save you? And so you you prayed a prayer or you had a conversation with somebody, you confessed your need and said, Hey man, uh, I'm a sinner just call it what it is I thought I'd made some mistakes I thought I'd struggled but man it, it's sin and if I'm if I'm going to use the words the Bible uses then I, I'm I just got to admit I'm wicked I got evil in my heart have you confessed that and then said man I need Jesus to save me I believe that he died on the cross rose from the grave that he's the Lord of Lords the Savior of the world and I've confessed him as my master have you done that that's what it means to get on the ark Question number two Where do you think your sense of justice comes from? The reason why you want justice in the world is because it was God's idea, and that's how you and I were made. And you'll never rightly understand justice or things as they should be until you rightly understand who God is. Last question. If you have boarded the ark, who are you inviting to come with you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for tonight. Got to thank you for the depth of your love for us. Got to thank you that uh, you sent your son Jesus to die for us on the cross. And God, to thank you so much that um, you, you pursued us, that you made a way, even though we were born into a rebellion, even though we sinned and we fell short of your standard, God, you still came and you saved us. So God, I thank you that salvation isn't for one person and his kids like it was for Noah in that time. But that now you've made salvation open to all people. That your word says that now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And so God, I pray if there's people here that have not boarded the ark, so to speak, that tonight would be the night that they would put their faith and trust in you completely. They would surrender their life over to you. And they would say, God, would you save me? Would they would, would, would you allow them to find atonement tonight at one minute with you? And God, would you move accordingly? It's in your name we pray. Amen.